Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Here with my sister and co-founder of Share Strength, Debbie Shore. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. And we've got two guests from Arkansas for the first time ever on this podcast. Um, what a coincidence, but not a coincidence because they're both working in ways that are related to each other. Uh, one is Matt Bell, uh, who's got a fabulous restaurant called South on Main in Little Rock. Uh, Matt is currently on his vacation and he's driving through Denver and he stopped at a studio to have this conversation with us. Matt, <laughs> thanks for being there. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm, I'm really honored to be on the show. How's your trip so far? Uh, it's it's been incredible. Went to see uh, family up in Montana and uh, decided to drive and take our dogs and make a little trip of it. Because your roots are Montana, then Texas, then Little Rock. You got it. Yes, sir. Yep. Good. Well, thank you for doing this. And um, so here with Pierre Ferrari, the CEO and president of Heifer International, which is an organization that focuses on poverty around the world and here in the United States, uh, mostly by uh, reforming the value chain for those who are producing our food. Mm -hmm. And Share Our Strength, Deb, I think used to be a relatively small funder, but a consistent funder in our early days when we, we were, were more about grant making and had a larger international focus than we do now. We were. I think we, we looked at, you know, like five or ten of the best organizations that were working globally, and, and Heifer was one of them. So Yeah, well, we actually, we've got Billy's picture up in the, uh, uh, in the village. Where's uh, my picture? Well, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> but we have his picture up there as, uh, as one of the Heifer heroes, just yeah, so we well, know. That's what, that's what I that's got so for, great. for visiting the ranch, that's which, good. Is, which is yep. a pretty cool thing to see. Um, so anyhow, let's start. You're both, uh, Pierre, you're, you're splitting your time between Little Rock and Atlanta, but um, well, Heifer International is headquartered in Arkansas. It, Little Rock, Arkansas, yeah. I actually yeah. split my time between Seat 7B and Seat 7A. Yes, on oh, I know that feeling. <laughs> um, and tell us how you got to Heifer. Um, you got a pretty interesting story. Yeah, I I, um, I immigrated from England uh, forty odd plus years ago, and uh, I ended up uh, working in the corporate world, and then I left that in about twenty years ago, and then I started working in uh, mostly developing small businesses in distressed communities, uh, using sort of venture capital tools uh, to try and build businesses for both employment and wealth creation. Um, so I did that for quite a while. But you skipped over the corporate world pretty oh, quickly. Yeah, so tell, yeah. tell us a little more, because I'm sure it, it was formative in terms of what oh, you're doing Oh, very now. formative. At least yeah, I'm guessing yeah. it was. So my first job out of uh, business school was the Coca-Cola company. Uh, I worked there both in finance and marketing. Um, then I did I did some work in the wine business and the juice business, a couple of other businesses. How many years at Coke? Uh, in total, about 20 years. So oh. a long career. Um, I left Coke in uh, 94 uh, as a senior VP of marketing for North America. So a lot of marketing experience, uh, learned a lot there. You know, you can question the product and everything else, and it is being questioned today, but the fundamentals of business are, it's a really well-organized, very sophisticated machine, and uh, I learned a lot. And I'm trying to apply some of those lessons to the nonprofit yeah. world. So. And when you, when you were there, yeah. was there a pull starting for you in terms of, like, shifting over to the nonprofit world and working on a whole variety yeah. of social issues, or did uh, just one day a switch go off, or was it gradual or sudden? Yeah, How did that work? no, it was. Uh, I started off actually uh, coming out of uh, coming out of business school, wanting to join the World Bank, and that didn't work out for a variety of reasons. So, um, I ended up just at the Coca Cola Company. I had worked there before before business school, so I had some good friends there, and so they pulled me in and. And that's what happened. And then while I was there, I constantly looked for opportunities to either volunteer or get engaged with world, uh, global development. I was born in Africa, so I had the... Uh, uh, so where my where in Africa? Uh, in the Congo. Congo. Yeah, in the Congo. So I have a, you know, uh, my, my parents were born there, my grandparents were born there, so we have a long history. They were all born in Congo? All, bo all born in this okay. area, the Katanga of the Congo. It's the farthest south, southern province. Uh, right next, you know, if, if you look at the Congo, uh, there's a little little tail to it at the bottom of it. That's Katanga. And it's known as the Copper Belt of Africa. My great-grandfather, instead of going to Ellis Island, ended up going to Katanga. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was the only difference, really, with just immigrants uh, from, you know, which today is kind of a relevant issue. But, uh, yeah, they just escaped Italy at the time. And um, so we ended up in this little mining town. And actually, they were, he was a chef. Matt, he was actually, uh, he, <laughs> he, got, he got trained 
um, by the on the P&O line, the, the, the shipping line between Southampton and New York. And he was a chef. This was your grandfather? This is my great-grandfather. Your great-grandfather. Uh-huh. Bruno Ferrari was, probably was just a cook, but that's just the same, you know. It's a uh, great well, chef name, though. <laughs> it is a great chef name. Yeah. So well, let's pause there just for a second, Matt. Tell us how you got to be a chef. Uh, you know, uh, we covered it briefly, but I was uh, born in Missoula, Montana. Uh, mm-hmm. Lived, grew up just south of there in a small town of about 2,800 people in Stevensville. And... Uh, was a music education major at the University of Montana, and I decided to take a semester off, and uh, I was uh, apprenticing to blow glass with a, a good friend of mine and um, needed to, to make some real money. <laughs> so I, I took a job uh, dishwashing at a, at a place called The Shack in Missoula and uh, realized that I just hated that. It was it was terrible. So kind of uh, uh, fudged my experience to, to get up on the floor and uh, started uh, bussing and waiting tables there. And I was there uh, almost seven years in total uh, as, a, as a waiter and a manager. And uh, when I wet, met when I met my wife, she uh, she basically said, you're such a great cook. You love cooking. Why aren't, why aren't you doing it? And I gave her a, a list of uh, 15 cities that had culinary schools that I was interested in, and six months later, we ended up in Austin, Texas. And why, do, why do our wives always really know us start. so much better than we know ourselves? Yeah. Wives are great uh, at that, do. aren't they? Uh, they do. You know, wives, families, sisters, you know, they, they are usually there to give us the push we need. So. I, I, I just yeah. I find it so incredible how many chefs we talk to who did not start out with a desire to cook mm. who just sort of you know by some you know twisted turn in their life ended up there and it just kind of makes me think about that's very inspiring to me because I feel mm. like so many other people could you know y- you think of great chefs as people who started out you know just loving it and going to school and planning that in their whole life but in, in reality so many people can you know if they have the innate talent they just don't know it yeah and you know I think that I think that speaks to to people finding kind of who who and what what they were meant to do you know mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think you and and Billy started out thinking we're going to run this great nonprofit one day you know I don't I don't think that's always the the plan coming out so, I definitely didn't think yeah. I'd be working next to my brother for 30 years that's no, true that's for sure <laughs> or even longer <laughs> or it could be longer yeah. if they let us yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and Matt how did you end up with South on Maine uh, you know, we I was working at the Capitol Hotel in Little Rock, which I'm sure Pierre is f- oh, familiar with. It's a beautiful, beautiful hotel. Yeah. And uh, the Stevens Corporation had just um, renovated and reopened it in, I believe, 2006. And uh, I'd heard about it, and people were talking pretty highly of it. And I was uh, helping uh, some other restaurateurs open a place and uh, heard about you know, I should, uh, you should go eat at the hotel. And I ate there and uh, turned in a resume that night at, at um, midnight online, actually. Well, the food must have been good. And, or, or, yeah. or not good enough and it needed you. Yeah. Well, it was <laughs> it was incredible. The, the chef that was running the Ashley's at the time is Cassidy Dabney, who's now at Blackberry Farm and uh, has participated yes. in a No Kid Hungry yes. Dinner in Little Rock. And the other chef I worked for was Matt McClure, who is at 21C in Bentonville, who is now hosting his own uh, No Kid Hungry dinner. So pretty, pretty cool. Love the way and, that works. Uh, yeah. 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 That's recruitment. Uh, um, and uh, while I was working at the hotel, I was there uh, almost five years. And kind of at the end, I thought, oh, you know, it's time to kind of explore something different, see where I can go. And this opportunity with Oxford American came along to uh, open a restaurant and I kind of naively thought that I'd be working for Oxford American, and <laughs> after a few meetings, quickly. So is Oxford learned, American, the the like the magazine, literary magazine, literary yes, magazine, sir. which I know, yeah, yeah. and okay, yeah. got it. We call it in. Uh, we have an intellectual partnership with Oxford American Magazine. So, uh, Oxford's headquarters is uh, right next door, and they wanted a venue to um, take the page to the stage. So. Uh, you know, L- Little Rock has this unique uh, unique reach out of out of a small town. Um, you know, with, with companies like Oxford American and 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 Dillard's based there, and the Stevens Corporation, and of course um, Heifer. You know, it it I think gives us a voice of of who we are. You know, being able to reach outside of Little Rock and 
that's really kind of what has has driven me with with my involvement with with No Kid Hungry and Share Our Strength is just you know reaching uh, into our community, but then also outside of it. Mm-hmm. And where and where Matt, where did that start for you in terms? And in other words, how did you go from being a very successful and accomplished chef and restaurateur to also being as deeply involved in the community as as you are now? Well, I you know I actually really love to tell this story and and have told it to to some people at at um, share our strength you know gr- growing up in montana it's it's a it's a very rural struggle you know um not unlike arkansas there's maybe five large city centers in a state that is fourth i guess fourth largest in the country and you know you grow up with uh, a real sense of of people's needs and and you know growing up we had a kid in my class daniel and you know, he was the one that seldom had a lunch when we'd go on field trips and, you know, never quite had snow boots. And, uh, you know, uh, this this was in first grade. And my mom would, uh, you know, we, di- we didn't have a lot, but, but we were, you know, we, we had food on the table. And so my mom would often, uh, with a, a group of other, other moms, would kind of take turns packing an extra lunch. And the, the real, the, the, the thing that they they said was you know make make sure you give this to Daniel before you guys get to class mm. so there's no you know there's mm. no kind of embarrassment, embarrassment or no yeah. no stigma with that and and that's something we we are constantly looking mm. at with you know breakfast in the classroom and stuff mm-hmm. is is this stigma and you know that was that was really uh, kind of influential in in me wanting to give back and well you've made a big big difference for us matt and just before we go any further i just want to say thanks on behalf of debbie and me and the entire team at share strength you've really been a stalwart in our in our work and um understanding now the kind of the set of formative experiences that went into that um really explains i think why you're so uh authentic and effective on our behalf when you communicate uh pierre you you must have uh Although you were very young at the time, you must have grown up seeing some level of, in a different way, of need and poverty as well. Certainly in, in Africa. Oh yeah, very deep. Um, in fact, uh, I was just listening to Matt and and uh, kids go hungry. You know, my my grandmother and my grandfather. My father, my grandfather was also a chef, and uh, my father was a great cook. And maybe there's sort of a decline in ability as time goes on, <laughs> in generational. <laughs> I'm sort of an average cook. But um, he, uh, he and she, my grandmother and grandfather, actually linked up with uh, the local uh, diocese and worked with the Catholic Church to um, help the local villages, the missions, to actually grow the vegetables that were then assembled by my grandmother in a wholesale and retail vegetable business. Uh, and this this kind of link prosperity, if you like, this 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 uh, value chain from vegetable from farm, literally village farm, all the way to um, you know, the restaurants in Elizabethville, which is the name of the town that we lived, uh, actually allowed for a lot of those kids to get educated and fed mm-hmm. properly, et cetera. So, yeah, so I saw it very, and, and I remember being on the trucks actually, going to collect the vegetables and and changing people's lives with uh, uh, with good economic activity. But I, I, I was listening to Matt, and I thought, you know, Matt, you and I need to, to uh, collaborate and uh, maybe put together an event either in your restaurant or at the Heifer Village, uh, combining, you know, your skills with, you know, all the food that uh, the co-ops, the grassroots co-op, and, um, you know, that, that you know about, that you're actually a buyer, and uh, doing, doing some really good event. Um, with uh, the Heifer Village, we have a, you know, we have an urban farm there, and Let's yes, I'm a, yeah. I, I buy quite a bit from a, yeah, one of my really good friends was with Dunbar Garden, uh, yeah. Chris, who is now yeah, sure. over with, uh, yeah, yeah, really, he's, he's a great farmer. Really fantastic. Yeah, yeah great sure. farmer, and the space you guys have is, yeah. is really incredible. So let's talk about what Heifer International is, because we've referred to it, but it's yeah. a real powerhouse of an organization now um, yeah. operating all over the globe. Tell us. Yeah, it's uh, it's an organization whose mission is to end poverty and hunger, uh, mostly with the least, of, you know, the poorest among the poor. So we work mostly. We work in Arkansas. We have uh, about uh, twelve acres of land there. We've got the building, which is, as I said, a lead platinum building, and then behind that we have about four, no, eight acres of land, three of which have now been converted to an urban farm. Then in Arkansas, about an hour away from Little Rock, we have the Heifer Ranch, which is 1,200 acres. Most of it is sort of grassland, it's pasture land, but we are slowly but surely converting it to a production um, 
uh, operation to support grassroots and a whole bunch of other activities, especially training farmers so that they can go back to their own land or help them find land to, uh, to find a living income uh, growing food, growing mostly uh, livestock. And then we have the Heifer Farm in Massachusetts, in Rutland, Massachusetts, which is about, uh, I think it's 28 acres where there is a small operation. We grow food there, et cetera. We have a whole program. We're building two, two cooperatives, one a, a livestock cooperative and the other one a vegetable fruit cooperative to set up a structure, an infrastructure, so that poor farmers with the right kind of teaching, the right kind of training can then join an infrastructure that actually allows them to grow the right kind of food and also access markets. Uh, otherwise, the system is just uh, extremely biased against uh, minority farmers or very poor farmers. So we're doing that. And Matt is a buyer, which is really helpful. So thank you, Matt, for that. Oops. Yeah, Heifer, Heifer helped found um, Grassroots Cooperative, yeah. which is my main source for chicken and pork at yeah. the restaurant. You know, and uh, just as an aside, um, you know, we're growing a whole bunch of different kinds of chicken at the Heifer Urban Farm. And I was telling, I used to be in the wine business, and uh, one of the things that we ought to do is a blind tasting of chickens, you know? Oh, that's a great but idea. With diff- wine. Of course. Of course. <laughs> with, with well, it's actually chicken <laughs> with the wine. It's never the other way around, you know? So, yeah, but I think, I think you know, I'm being told that uh, these chickens actually do taste and are, have different mouthfeel, right? They, they go organoleptically different. So mm-hmm. I want to do this blind. I don't want to do this with you know a Tyson branded chicken and, a, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I want to do it blind. So let's, if you're willing, uh, Matt, let's let's do it together. We'll, we'll do something. We'll have idea. fun with this and raise some money. You know, I've spent a lot of time. Absolutely. I've spent a lot of time in Mexico, and when I get the chicken there, which is very small and thin, but very very flavorful. Right. Everything tastes different in all these countries, right? On Absolutely. The land and the fertilizer and everything that goes into it. So, so here's a small fact with that that. This sort of describes the work that we do with Heifer. We are very committed to village, what he calls village chicken or Creole chicken. They've got all sorts of different names. There is no doubt that the chicken grown in those kind of conditions, not the mass marketing or the mass industrial kind of chickens, have a very different texture and flavor. So, and the consumer in these countries who don't have much money uh, also are able to differentiate. And they pay two to three times the price for the village chicken and the industrial chicken. That then creates a value chain mm-hmm. that allows for the poor to compete. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not really competing. They've just found a segment, right? They've essentially found a segment of business. It is 10, 15, 20% of the market. That's what we do. We kind of help the farmers to actually grow chickens uh, in a safe, environmentally safe. Um, we make sure that the animals are well taken care of, that they're inoculated and protected from disease, well-fed, et cetera. So we don't violate the practices that allow for the chickens to be who they are, but we create conditions so that uh, the animals are well, as I say, mm-hmm. well taken care of, protected from predators and all sorts of things that happen in these kind of conditions. That's and, what we do. And you do it all over the world. You talk about all your work in Arkansas, but yeah. you're in how many countries would you say? Right now we're in 26 countries, yeah. uh, about six in South Amer- Central and South America, nine in Africa, and six in Asia. And I feel like there's kind of two aspects of your work. Um, I guess I would describe it as if you look through one end of the telescope, yep. you see this very, very simple model right. of uh, what I've always understood to be. You give $100 to the Heifer Project, right. you're going to send a cow or right. a goat or some, right. some right. livestock to a family yep. that needs it, and they're going to get everything they can out of that, and then that, yep. that cow's going to have more yep. cows, et cetera. So that's one part of the model, right. but there's also a much And that was more, the original, yeah, right? That was the, that was the original kind of model the, at the, the same time, but I think where Billy is going is that you've got a very sophisticated now infrastructure. Now a much more sophisticated yeah. infrastructure yeah. Right, right, around right. it that's working on advocacy and right. systems change. Talk yeah, a little bit about both, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so the system, so this, I'm glad you brought up systems change because fundamentally the, the, the 500 million smallholder farmers in the world, which is sort of our segment, we're not going to reach all 500 million, we're reaching two or three million a year. Is and you're, you're describing them as small... Smallholder farmers. So small it's about the farms. land that they had. Okay. Uh, and it depends on the country. In Rwanda, smallholder farm, it might be one acre, half an acre. Okay. You go to Rajasthan, it might be 10 acres, depending on kind of land mass and, and density of population. But they're smallholders. They are poor. Uh, they don't have resources. They generally are uh, poorly educated, so they don't have a lot of skills. But they're very smart. Poorly educated, but smart. And so it doesn't take very much to actually educate them to a place where they will take care of animals, which is, you know, animals are, uh, or livestock is an extraordinary phenomenon, right? They take advantage of um, 
I, 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 I don't want to call them a miracle, but it's a biological or a physical biological phenomenon of um, converting sunlight to food, right? It's photosynthesis. You've got that going on. And, of course, the conversion into uh, uh, the feed that maybe humans can't consume. Then you've got the extraordinary thing of ruminant digestion, where these folks can actually, or these animals can actually take in material that's simply indigestible to, to humans. And then Sorry, you've got... what's rep- the term for that? Uh, ruminant. Ruminant, ruminant digestion. digestion, right? Two stomachs that the cows have, etc. Right. Yep. So and it's basically a bacterial phenomenon. It's like yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third piece is reproduction. So you combine the three of them, and you have an extraordinarily productive mm. system that allows for. It starts with sunlight and ends up with eggs on your table or, or, or meat on your you know on, on your dish. So those three phenomena is, are the underpinnings of heifer. And we bring those things in a disciplined, organized fashion, teach the farmers how to take care of all three phenomena. We teach them how to forage, how to grow seed, how to, to actually collect seed and plant for the next year so that they actually produce the right kind of what we call rations for the animals so that the animals are healthy throughout their lives. This then allows the animals to be healthy so they can do their ruminant thing really well, goats and cows. Etc. So that it's just it's just an extraordinary thing. Every time I go to the field, and I, I'm travel there all the time to watch this physical, biological, chemical phenomenon take place. So seventy years, right? Seventy seventy five. So yeah. yeah, I was that that yeah. blew me away. And I, you know, we're thirty plus. We're what thirty two years old yeah. at Sheriff's Ring. And we've had a couple of... You're, you know, a, lo- you're a lot older, but the organization <laughs> is 32 years old. <laughs> Has Only to bring up my age brother can all the say time. This. Um, but, you know, we've had a couple of... We've had a lot of interesting moments in 32 years. We've had a couple of very pivotal, yeah. very pivotal moments, like the, when we decided to yeah. focus on ending child hunger, yeah. going narrow and uh, deep yeah. on ending yeah. child yeah. hunger, yeah. something that Swamp is, is uh, <laughs> aspirational but achievable, like yeah. big yeah. enough to matter but Swamp winnable. Man. Can you, in 70, you weren't there for all those years, obviously. Yeah, no. <laughs> You've only, what, seven or so years, yeah, I think? You seven, said. exactly. Um, but, you know, can you can you share a little bit about what some of those pivotal yeah. times were? Um, so one one that happened uh, probably around 1995, so that's a relatively recent one, was the discovery uh, of what they call the catalog, which is what you're talking about. You're probably your yeah. personal experience with Heifer. And it was a small um, congregation, I believe in Florida, that started this catalog and essentially selling animals. Because that wasn't the original idea. And somebody very smart at Heifer uh, said, this is a good idea. Uh, let's take it national. And they did. So the, the organization moved from about a $2 million or so annual revenue to you know, well into the $120, 130000000 dollars. Because based of the catalog. On the catalog. Based on the catalog. Based on the catalog. We need wow. a catalog, Bill. Yeah, we need, yeah no, we need no, no, we don't catalog. want any more competition. <laughs> we need a catalog. <laughs> but it's extraordinary. And a lot of other nonprofits, of course, have copied us, but we've maintained, you know, we're sort of the, the premium brand. But you've got that. that great equivalency yeah. in the cat. I mean, yeah. that's the beauty and, you of know, it. And it's, it's allowed us to position, and, and a lot of the people who use the catalog do give gifts because I think there's a, there's a relatively substantial segment of, um, of people, of, of, of generous donors who think, you know, everyone around me has too much stuff. And so this is a gift catalog that doesn't mm-hmm. yield more stuff. Mm-hmm. And we find that a lot of older donors actually use it with their grandchildren. They said, okay. I'm trying to teach my grandchildren yes. the idea of philanthropy and that they have too much stuff. So it's fascinating to watch and understand the motives behind all this. Mostly stuff they don't need. Right. <laughs> in any way, shape, up, or form. You know, it's yeah. extraordinary. Uh, Matt, as, as uh, Pierre was talking, and as particularly he was talking about the animals and the kind of this you know miracle of like what you get from them, I was thinking most chefs probably don't have the luxury of spending a lot of time thinking about this, but you might be one of the exceptions in, in terms of you know your background in Montana, Texas, Arkansas. Is that something that chefs in your industry uh, are you know kind of intentional and conscious about? I think we're seeing a real, real change. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, Alice Waters and, and restaurants like that, that, you know, have come from the West Coast. That That's always been a thing. And, and I think part of that is a luxury of, of growing season and, and a, you know, a customer base that's really into it. But I, I think the, the smaller markets now it, and, and customers think it's a given that the chef is thinking about that mm-hmm. and that the chef is interested in that. And, you know, I grew up. Uh, on a 
you know, the town was about 2,600 people. I think it might be 2,800 people now. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, you, you went to Joe's Dairy and you got your milk and you went to M&S Meats and, and you got your, your meat processed. But we had kind of a unique situation where uh, the first house we bought was, was from a, a rancher in Montana. And uh, the house came with a finishing lot, which is where he would mm. – uh, have his cows before they would go to slaughter. And he worked out a deal with my parents that um, if he could use the finishing lot, we would get a half a beef whenever we wanted, uh, which was an interesting proposition because I was raised a vegetarian. So <laughs> at the time, my, d- my dad thought, you know what? Like, I, I see these cows. I know what they're eating. I know how they're treated. We're in. So uh, about once a month, the the lot would get full, and then early in the morning, about five o'clock in the morning, this truck would rumble down our driveway, and you know, take a couple cows, and it'd go off to the uh, M and S meats to be processed. And you know, a few weeks or a week later, we'd get our you know all of this this meat from from the cow. And uh, you know, I I think I'm I'm really lucky to grow in up in a circumstance where that that was an understood part of the food chain. I think, you know, a lot of chefs and a lot of people have become so far removed from that um, understanding, you know, um, you know, where, where do you, where does your food come from? You know, what, how does it get to your plate? And, and an understanding of that, I think, gives us more empathy into, uh, you know, how we, how we tackle hunger issues, you know, uh, worldwide and, mm-hmm. and locally, you know, it's a, it, I've, I've been on both ends of the catalog where, um, Amy's aunt Mary and Ted have, have purchased stuff for the whole family from Heifer. And then kind of in a, in a, way to kind of, I guess, pay that forward. You know, my wife and I have done the same for for my family in Montana and California. And the response to it is really interesting because you kind of do it thinking, oh, man, people are going to be like, oh, I didn't get anything, you know. <laughs> and it, it's quite the opposite. They're actually really excited to not get something and to to have something in their name that's out there that they feel like is is really connected because even though my family in California is from Sacramento they were they were uh, it was a it was a farm you know it was a farm town when my parents grew up there and you know so uh, you know I think they getting those gifts from from Heifer they kind of took them back 40 years to when they understood how the food chain worked and, and what it did and you know, I've 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 luckily never gotten so far removed from it. Uh, continuing to work in restaurants that cared about ingredients, and I think I think Arkansas is is coming a little late uh, as far as um, restaurants go to uh, understanding how their their food works. You know, we mentioned Grassroots Farmers Cooperative, and um, originally they were called Falling Sky Farm, mm-hmm. and it was one farmer, uh, Cody, Cody and Andrea. Yep, Cody and Andrea, and they. Oh, I guess right when the restaurant opened, Cody was coming to the restaurant kind of regularly, which is rare because they're a good hour and a half drive from Little Rock. And I'm like, man, you're in town a lot. What are you doing? He's like, well, actually, I'm I'm working with Heifer on on how we're gonna start a, a co-op, and uh, it was really interesting because you know maybe the first eight months of the co-op was was tough for everyone because. You know, I'm used to this chicken that was packed by one family and, you know, now we're involving multiple families. But they they committed to saying that, you know, our standards at, at Falling Sky Farms, that's what we're going to promote. And, uh, you know, Pierre might be able to tell you, but I think there's nine farms now that's involved, right. maybe right. more. And uh, they're looking to bring more on as mm-hmm. as they grow and as the market demands it. You know, when I was dealing with just Falling Sky Farms, uh, there were two months every year where I'd have to scramble to find a, a nice organic chicken from my food service provider because I bought them out of chickens, you know. <laughs> and at the Capitol Hotel, Falling Sky Farm grew because the Capitol Hotel demanded it. We would buy oh man we were buying i guess 80 chickens a week from them wow 
which was which was huge and they really had to grow their production and it you know the 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 cool thing is they reached a point where they needed to find help to continue to grow and uh you know my understanding at the time of heifer was you buy a cow and somebody in some community gets a cow you know uh, i didn't understand you know kind of this um I guess kind of small business component that they were they were helping with and and you know teaching you know I, I guess I didn't understand that it could happen in Arkansas too, <laughs> and seeing that was kind of a game changer for my understanding of heifer and yeah. uh, you know hopefully a game changer for these nine farmers as mm-hmm. well. One of the things I love about heifer's model is exactly what you're talking about, Matt, because most people in philanthropy are looking for some way of creating in their mind an equivalency like if I give a hundred dollars what's going to happen and it's so clear Mm. in your case at one level and then there's also as we were talking about this kind of systems change aspect to what you do one of the things I'm curious about Pierre is and and it sounds like a simple question but I I, I know that you'll know that it's not Uh, what does success look like for you Mm. Uh, when does Heifer say yes we're we've accomplished what we wanted to accomplish it's such a enormous ambition and aspiration how do you measure success how do you know if you're on track what how would you describe your goal i mean i know it's ending poverty but yeah yeah so we try to say ending poverty where we work Uh, work. yeah so that's That's uh, that's a fundamental and one of the ways we measure a key measure is to we've developed this whole idea uh, with 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 a couple of uh, partners, uh, on, which is called which is linked to the living wage idea uh-huh. that's prevailing in the United States. We call it living income. So in every every place where we work, we whether it's a baseline or, or somewhere where we've been working for a while, we calculate what the current living income is for families, and then we also calculate what. We, we calculate, the, calculate the base income, and then we say what's the living income. And living income is defined. It's quite complex. But we don't have time to, to discuss it here in terms of the technicality of it, but fundamentally allows those farmers to live a life of dignity. So it covers food, shelter, clothing, education, et cetera. That is so okay. when we have communities on so the when you close that gap we between close that their gap. base income exactly. and that's what it. the living income is. That's 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 that. success. Okay. Uh, and it's not easy. It requires because most of the farmers, most of the commodities we deal with or are involved in, the systems that exist today are really well organized to actually exploit in almost a predatory way the smallholder farmers and keep them barely sustainable so that all of the value they create is captured by other people. So Pierre, you've had the opportunity with Heifer International to actually go to villages and see how they've changed. Give us a sense of what you see when you first get there and what it looks like after Heifer's had their impact. So, you know, the marketing, this is a great question and a really important question. So the marketing uh, and the experience people have with heifer is that the fundamental thing that we do is place an animal. It actually is not true. We do place the animal, but the fundamental change is actually social psychological change. So we come across and we work with communities which could be described as almost clinically depressed. People are generationally poor, meaning they've, uh, they've you know, maybe six, seven, maybe a hundred generations of poverty in that particular area. And what are some of the conditions that they're so actually living So you're talking about mal- severe malnutrition among the kids, access to very poor quality waters, or very difficult access to water, poor land use or exhausted land situations, no health care, poor education, no access to education, girls are not educated, uh, housing which is decrepit, uh, in many cases with uh, dirt floors, poor roofs, disease is rampant. Uh, in Africa you will find severe cases of malaria, yellow fever, etc. In Asia you'll find other, other types of diseases. So you got conditions that are really um, desperate uh, and they are most of the folks that we come across are now in situations where the despair is so deep that they, they either call it karma or this is just the way it is, I'm condemned to this for whatever reason. The work that we do, and we use what we call values-based training, a set of cornerstones that we have, that approach these communities and move them from a level of hopelessness about themselves to a level of hopefulness where they now can begin to start working at finding ways to escape poverty. Without that shift, that psychological shift, nothing we do, no animal, no training will actually catch. Uh, that's just, we know that. Mm-hmm. 
And so we spend months working with the communities. Essentially, we're using groups, technology, training, uh, conversations, deep, deep conversation, which includes spirituality, by the way, not religion, spirituality, whatever, however they see the divine, if they see a divine in their lives. And the, but we talk about self-reliance, sharing and caring for each other, a whole range of issues that begin to realize that their lives are actually in their own hands. And without that, uh, nothing will happen. Once that takes, and once the process has begun, and there is a sort of aha moment, and we know when that happens, we, we've got a lot of experience, then we begin to do the technical training. All right, we're ready, we're gonna bring some animals in, you've gotta create shelter for them, we're gonna show you how to grow the forage, et cetera. But just to go back to the secret sauce, the real change that has to happen, it's social psychology. That I've got the power to- I have the internal to, power. To shape It starts my inside. Life. It doesn't start from the outside. Um, and, and when it does take, you'll do you actually see the, you know, it, oh. is it is it visible? It's very visible. The changed economy first, yeah. the the changed, you know, yeah. psycho psychosocial, uh, and then the changed economy has led to better housing, better health, better and then water. you see once the flow of funds begin to happen in the in, in the villages, they will generally spend it. 95% of the time, they will spend it on the right things. Mostly we work with women for, to make sure that happens. With all due respect to us guys, uh, you know, there's some, there's some poor behavior on the part of guys, especially because the, it's, it's much easier for women to understand that they have an inner power. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating process. I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are going to say, oh, that's bullshit. You know, the men, the men are just as good. They're not. <laughs> At least in our experience, they're not. No so, argument from me. Yeah. <laughs> so the women really actually take all of the training and all of the belief in themselves much more seriously and they'll, they'll work harder at it. Uh, so the, the change, the physical change is that we take people, so one of the things we do when we take visitors, uh, be it donors or, or, or institutional donors or or, partic or any kind of uh, partner, we actually show them what villages look like without, before Heifer in intervenes in some way. And then we take them to Heifer Village uh, and they are just blown away. It's not the cows that blows them away. Right. It's the people. Right. You know, the people are joyous. They're active. They're energetic. They'll complain. You know, they they take they've taken charge of their lives. So impact investing, which is the hot topic, right, has been for right. a few years, is a humongously important tool for us. Most impact investors, unfortunately, give dominance to in financial returns. We upend that and we look for social returns with. Financial returns being much more patient. So, for example, you have a lot of impact investors who basically say, I need my 15, 16% return, just like, um, like a hedge fund, but I also want social return, be it ecological or social. We're saying, no, we want to have, for example, we want to close the gap, the poverty gap, uh, the living income gap, and we think that if you get your capital percent, that would be great. So we're now deploying large amounts of capital to create a value chain. So, Matt, so give I, us an example. Um, we are working with 150,000 women farmers in Nepal around the goat meat value chain. They have been exploited by a trading system which has working capital. So the small coyote traders in coffee, if you've surely heard of, but the small equivalent trader in Nepal comes along with a motorbike and he's able to buy the goats from the farmers, which has been difficult to raise, at the lowest possible price with cheating them on weight, et cetera. So we're creating a series of co-ops which now have to be financed because the farmers still live quite poorly and they need the cash now to cover medical expenses, uh, school expenses, whatever. So we're now having to find a way and we're collaborating with banks, including um, European banks, everything else, to provide up to $30 million worth of working capital to this system. So we have 150,000 women farmers organized in self-help groups of 25 each, then c collaborating to create co-ops, maybe 12 to 15 self-help groups organized in small co-ops, and themselves organized into unions. So that the, the future for, for women in, in Nepal, because you're talking about 150,000 farmers who are now feeling the dignity of being economically self-reliant, right? And that is going to be 
uh, an interesting first for many of them and for their families. Interestingly enough, the completely coincidentally, in Nepal, the new constitution has called for 30% of the House of Representatives there to be women. Where are these women going to come from? Who's educating them? We're part of that. Um, I could listen to Pierre talk about this all day. I, I really <laughs> could. You'll have your chance when he's back, <laughs> yeah, well, come back in Little Rock. Well, yeah. well I, I'd actually, you, you two are like the perfect pair to give us some advice, particularly Debbie and me and our, our organization at Share Our Strength, because we have this kind of constant conversation as an organization that was uh, begun at, in the wake of the Ethiopian famine mm. in 1984, that, that being the catalyst, and our focus mm. being initially international and yeah. funding organizations like Heifer and others. Uh, to one that has now been laser focused on childhood hunger in the United yeah, States, sure. we have this some somewhat of a tension in the organization about you know are there ways to get back to our international roots? A small part of our grant making is international. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd l- love your advice if you have any on the best way to think of it. If we don't like your advice, we'll just edit it out of yeah, the right. podcast. <laughs> but, um, but 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 you might have some. And you know, Matt, you're kind of in a unique position because you, you're you're so devoted to the goals of the No Kid Hungry campaign, but you obviously also have a sensibility about why the work of Heifer is so important. Yeah, Any and, sense and, of how we think about it and balance? And, and, and just before you answer, I just want to add this you know, piece into the thinking, which is I'm so compelled um, around the international work because for a lot of reasons, but the two kind of business reasons are for us, you know, we have learned when I say we collectively, right, this network of ours, which is so robust and diverse, we've learned so much about the programmatic wins of No Kid Hungry. Can't apply them everywhere, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. And we've learned so much about revenue generation mm-hmm. that it just, for me, it just feels like we have to be sharing that mm-hmm. beyond the U.S. So anyway, I just... So have we led the witnesses sufficiently now? Well, <laughs> just adding that in. Um, what do you think? Yeah, no, so I think... Um, if you go to these countries, whether you go to Nairobi or New Delhi or Phnom Penh or all these other places, the culinary uh, situational conditions are ready for you. You you know you go. We have we have a program in Cambodia where um, the farmers are connected and grow organic chicken. Actually, they started in pork and then the pork market collapsed. But we had taught them well enough, which was which thrilled us, right? Mm-hmm. We weren't quite sure they were going to be that flexible and that, that adaptable. The pork market collapsed for political reasons between Vietnam and China. Anyway, the Cambodians could now, the Cambodians farmers could no, no longer make money selling pork, so they just went, switched right over to chicken. But the market there in Phnom Penh, and I'm not talking about the expatriate market, I'm talking about um, uh, upper income Cambodians are interested in the same issues that we have about clean food. It's mm. all about clean mm. food. Yep. There is a huge movement in both Africa mm-hmm. and Asia looking to to eat uh, high quality food. So they are ready to participate in the kind of programs you're talking about because they understand the elite in those countries understand poverty. Yep. Yep. But you have you have all of the leverage, all of the conditions that allowed you to do what you do. I would never have thought of those countries that you mentioned. Right, yeah. I you, wouldn't have either. And was it, Nepal, did you say Nepal? No, did, what did you say? I said uh, Cambodia, okay. Phnom Penh, yeah. Which, okay. But you go, uh, Vietnam has got, I mean, incredible culinary, fra- uh, what do you yeah. call it, uh, ecosystem now. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think it's ready, and I, I would, what I would do if I were you is go to one or two countries where there's deep poverty, and you can get the data for that. At the same time, because of the sort of inequality that exists in the world, you can actually bring your program, and they will participate. I mean, we know them yeah. because we well, go to them, we go to them and say, who own the restaurants or know the right, hotels right. and the places? They are they want to buy high quality foods. Right. Well, if we go, we're going with you. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, we'll go together. <laughs> Matt, what do you think? And we'll eat well, by the way. <laughs> sure. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's great for me because I can say, you know, look directly at this money impacting Arkansas, look at it impacting the South, and looking at look at it impacting America. I I think the the leap for for share our strength you know, internationally kind of lies in in those communities you're helping, which which tend to often be, uh, you know, immigrant communities, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people people that have have come here for something better and they they haven't found it, but they have found help through share our strength. You know, I, I think that that those 
those communities and being able to trace that back to where those people came from is is kind of an easy mm. i guess easy sightline for for share our strength you know and and something easy for supporters to grasp you know we're helping people in these communities in in Chicago or in Arkansas but they are they are immigrants from from mm-hmm. Cambodia or or from China you know it's uh Honduras or Honduras yeah yeah South America most certainly and it's just a it seems like an easy sightline for me but i'm you know i'm so all in yeah. <laughs> that it, it you know maybe that's too simplified for me to see well, that's, but. Helpful, that's actually really helpful. interesting that yeah. i was in a school in boston last wednesday visiting in east boston where they're piloting a um they, they've renovated the school to build a kitchen which mm. most schools don't have anymore so that they could mm. actually source local food and cook it mm-hmm. for the kids uh the school is 87 percent latin american uh 80 yeah. percent uh english as a second language and you know uh, just as you were saying, there, we have a big, big program in Boston, and I've never thought about it the way you described it, Matt. Um, and they, you know, they probably come from farming families. Yeah, they, so they, they have they, they have a real right. sense about the work or how you work with soil. Right. Um, right. And I think yeah, know, the I, connection to agriculture for for mm-hmm. uh, I guess you know uh, smaller economic countries is uh, they're so much more closely tied to understanding growing and saving and. You know, uh, just just being connected to their food system where yeah. we've, you know, and, you know, Pierre understands it coming from Coca-Cola. You know, there's there's so many things that we've done to to kind of remove ourselves mm-hmm. from the food system to, to you know, for, for ease and for growth and for, you know, help with your family. There's there's so many shortcuts, but it's it's taken its toll. And I think, you know, people are really committed to. Like you said, clean food, and I, I think that translates to, to clean energy as well. And clean you know, soil, in, yeah. In the future, clean yeah. soil, yeah. So one of the things I tell, tell people, because I, I really think that farming is one of the most dignified uh, form of work, uh, and I say that to all the farmers we work with, and I'm saying it here. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many times you're going to see a doctor this year, hopefully not too often, maybe once or twice for your annual, annual checkup. Uh, how many times you're going to see a lawyer, maybe two or three times, but you see a farmer three times a day. <laughs> and right, I, mm-hmm. and right. it's really important. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the farmer is the one that uh, takes care of the soil and yep. makes sure that we survive. So yep. anyway, well, anyway, <laughs> I'm just thinking how much I learned today. Yeah, well, you know, before we, we always want that to be kind of mm-hmm. the the measurement of yeah. this show is mm-hmm. that you know listeners learn, and I just learned so much from both of you today. Well, before Debbie and I go back to the office and tear up our strategic plan and try, <laughs> try to convince the organization to, to write a new one, um, which, which we, we may well do, um, tell us what's uh, two things, I guess. What's, what's next for each of you? Um, Matt, South on Main, um, anything new that you've got planned? Um, any other restaurant activities in the works any cycling events any uh participation in our chef cycle event i was wondering when debbie'd get around (laughs) well hey pierre has the catalog and we have chef cycle it's a couple million dollar difference but we'll get there yeah pierre's an awful fit looking guy too i think you you should know about our chef cycle ride because you would enjoy it yeah yeah well you know debbie puts the screws about chef cycle so i'll uh i'll i'll throw my plug in for you know the the only thing i've ever asked for uh from Share Our Strength is that I get to do a Montana dinner one day. Oh, so. boy, would we love that. Well, I know. well, and as you know, the governor there is such a big supporter yeah. of ours that oh, that would yeah. be a natural, Matt. Matt, definitely. Yeah, and you guys might have a spokesman that kind of pushes Montana every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Jeff, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeff right. Bridges, Jeff Bridges, yes, of course. Um, anyhow, what's, we'll next, you know, th- what's next for you? Yeah, and, that's... Uh, and how can uh, folks who are listening find you? South on Maine's probably the best place, but... Um, yeah, you know, South on Main, I, I don't hide my email address. It's matt at southonmain.com. And, uh, you know, Pierre, if, if you're in there, there's a really good chance that I'll be there as well. Okay. And, you know, we're, we're four years old. We'll be five in August. So that's a, a really big milestone for a restaurant. And, you yeah. know, time to start thinking about some other things. But, um, you know, my work with, with Share Strength has been – it's just been so um, – influential and and you know i've told jenny dirksen and and emily roth so many times that these are staff you know, colleagues as, of ours yep. yes mm-hmm. for for as much uh for as much as they think i've given 
to you guys. I feel like I've I've gotten so much more back in in just experience with with understanding kind of how to to go beyond just being a restaurateur and actually being an influencer and being a philanthropist in the community that it's um, it's been an incredible lesson. So I you know I, I really think that the next thing that that South on Main and and our our company home to table does is is going to be something involved with you know uh, basically training people in the kitchen and, and you know obviously running a restaurant but I'd I'd like that to to incorporate some sort of of job training and and maybe promotion and graduation program within that restaurant whatever that next one happens to be mm-hmm. so that's, that's exciting that's great yeah that's what I'm excited about like Matt I'm sorry you're not with us but especially because we usually ask the chefs to bring a treat for us to eat here at yeah. the station. So we got but nothing time. but coffee. <laughs> next time. Um, yeah. Uh, Pierre, what's next for uh, Heifer So uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the sort of food side, I'm looking forward to uh, doing a, a chicken taste test with the Dorkin chickens and all that. So, But on the, on the, on the bigger scale, <laughs> yeah, I'm a foodie. Uh, on the bigger scale, um, we really are trying to mobilize a lot of capital. Uh, and I'm talking about working capital and some uh, physical capital. This, I'm going to be in New York this, uh, this later this week. Um, to talk about how to mobilize uh, the kind of capital that's required. We we have done an incredible job, or the staff has done an incredible job mobilizing large numbers of farmers. And now we need to give them resources so they can change their lives themselves, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. themselves. You know, they have to be responsible and self-reliant, and they have to borrow the money and pay it back, and we do all that kind of training. Uh, but without access to it, with, I mean, real access, I mean, being able to go to the bank and, you know, with collateral say, okay, we need now, this co-op needs $150,000 to build, uh, let's say an abattoir, small chicken abattoir, so they can process the chicken or the goat or whatever it is. Nothing will change. It'll just keep on working. So I see capital as a big future. And there's, of course, trillions of dollars available in the capital markets. There's only a yes. few billions available in the philanthropy market. Yes. So we've got to get out of the philanthropy game. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the things we always talk about at Share Our Strength is the need to not just redistribute wealth, but create wealth. Create wealth. It's it's a different kind of wealth because it goes into the community. We call it community wealth. But unless we find ways to create it, we're not going to break this cycle. We call it new value creation. New value creation. I like that. And the best way for somebody who's listening to get involved with Heifer, obviously your website, but are there other specific ways that people are inspired by listening to you can make Uh, a difference? My, my, again, my, my, my email address is not, not hidden. It's pierre.ferrari at heifer.org. Uh, it's www.heifer, H-E-I-F-E-R.org. You can get online. You've got the catalog. Uh, we have a thousand ways with which you could donate. Yeah, I mean, there's, a way, there's really a way for <laughs> yeah, everybody to everybody. play a role with Heifer Absolutely. one way or another. And if you're in Arkansas, come by and see us. Uh, come look at our ranch. Come look at our heifer, uh, you know, volunteer, if you like. Uh, there's lots of opportunities. We have, well, yeah. Having been to the ranch, I could say it's a great experience. It, and I hope people it? will take you up on it. Yeah. It was a really, really special yeah. when I went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Matt Bell from South on Main in Little Rock, thank you for being with us. Thanks for taking time out on your drive across country. Really special to have you and uh, you're just an amazing friend and champion for our work thank you for having me Uh, I've I've been really wanting to do the show so this was a great opportunity and thanks to KUVO in Denver for uh, lending us their studio yes thank you KUVO Um, and Pierre Ferrari really such an inspirational leader in what you're doing around the globe it's really a real treat to be able to listen to you I'm just thrilled to be able to meet you because uh, I said you're one of the heifer heroes so here I am that's great (laughs) Uh, and Deb Shore yeah Uh, thank you it was great share our strength okay we've got a lot of work to do Deb put your picture up too we better get back I'll come visit I'll be there All right, good Um, she's my younger sister a lot of people (laughs) ask so I'll spare you having nobody has to ask (laughs) she's two years young it's quite obvious Um, (laughs) much younger this is Billy Shore you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir get closer to the problems that you care about there's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said if your pictures are not good enough you're not close enough well in the social change space getting close bearing witness going into the community working with people directly getting an understanding of what they need That's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. 
You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.